Let's praise his name together by reading the word of God together. We'll be in Mark chapter 10, and I want to read the beginning of Mark 10 and then the beginning of Mark 11, make a quick observation and pray, and then we'll study a little bit more through the gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. So reading together with me, Mark chapter 10, verse 1, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And then look at Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and then look at verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. So here's the point I want to make before we pray. Everything Jesus teaches in Mark 10, we need to think about in light of where he's going as he's teaching. Meaning, whatever Jesus has to say to us as he teaches us in Mark 10, let's remember this is the one who's going to Calvary to be crucified for us. So for this morning's message, for next week and the next week as we look at these verses, that's the perspective we need to have as we listen to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus, that we, yes, have a teacher above all teachers. The greatest teacher is Jesus. But may we also know as we listen to his teaching that he's more than a teacher. He's the faithful bridegroom. He's the sacrificial one. He's the greatest servant. He's come for our redemption. He's come to help us. And what's broken in us is inside in the heart. And Jesus alone can transform us from the inside out. So may you use his teaching today for that purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We may be seated. Let's go on and see here what goes on at the beginning of Mark chapter 10. I'm going to preach this message the meaning of marriage, and ultimately this is a sermon, it's a Jesus sermon above all other things, as any sermon ought to be from the scripture, but there is a particular question that's asked of him. In verse 2, it says, the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce And to send her away. Jesus said to them, It's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, last Sunday, as you'll remember, we talked about in the fall, we now have this inherent belief that we are to have dominion over one another in ways that God did not say that we were to have dominion over. 
Remember, God in Genesis 2 created the male and female, and he said, you're going to have dominion over the fish and over the birds of the air and basically over the earth that God had created. But in the fall, men and women, Adam and Eve specifically, wanted dominion over God himself. And God's not going to allow anybody to have dominion over him. But one of the devastating consequences of this is now we seek to have dominion over one another. And perhaps nowhere is this as painfully played out as in this precious creation God had established in Genesis 2 called marriage. Marriage is not about the husband having dominion over the wife or the wife having dominion over the husband, but all things have been distorted that God has made. And now in attempting to remove God from his position as God and replace him as God The fall has wrecked everything God has created and designed. But you'll notice here, Jesus says, let's go back to the beginning. And friends, we're broken from the inside. We're sinners through and through. Our hearts, because of sin, and we talked about this last week, are ruled by certain things. Jesus calls it the hardness of your heart. Our hearts are hardened. And specifically, that means that we're self-centered. Apart from Christ, we, we view all of life as how it relates to me. We're discontent. We have relational dysfunction. We have the desire for control. You think about the implications of that if you bring that into marriage. Our hearts can be ruled by fear, anger, envy, exhaustion. So I'm asking you to extend me some grace as we think through this, because again, this is a Jesus-centered sermon. I want to begin here. Let's first consider this. Let's consider who gives marriage its meaning. Where does marriage come from? The Bible teaches us it's God who created all things glorious in creation. He created the majestic things, the mountains, the oceans, the vastness of the universe, And he created what's intricate in our own selves. I mean, think about what actually is true of your design that you got up this morning and came here and all the things that have gone in your mind and how God made your eyes and your ears as you're listening to this sermon right now. And that same God creates marriage. Now, the Pharisees have an agenda in all this. We should note that. And I love the distinction made here. It says Jesus began to teach them The Pharisees came to test him. And I want you to see that as the heart of the creator of marriage. He doesn't come along to test you. In fact, let's just ask this. When did God give us the law? When did God give the law to his people? After he had chosen them as his people. Does that make sense? So the law was not given to his people and say, if you obey this, you'll become my people. No, that would be a test. That's how the Pharisees used the Word of God. And whether it's the subject of marriage or any other issue, there's still people who want to take what God uses or God has said in His Word and use it as a test. But God is a teacher much more than He is a tester. I hope that makes sense. The Pharisees think of themselves as teachers, but they're not teachers. They're legalistic testers. And they know, hey, look what's happening. The crowds are still gathering. We know how we can upset these crowds gathering. True then, true now. We'll get him in trouble if we ask him a question about 
divorce. Because no matter how he answers this question, this is their assumption, I believe, he's going to offend a whole lot of people in that crowd, and they'll stop coming to hear his teaching. But Jesus is a teacher, friends. It means he reasons with his people. It means he listens and he responds. He's patient. Now, let's not mistake that to mean that he doesn't uphold to the truth. He's a teacher. That's his character. Do you see him this way? So many people that are, I don't know how to say it other than to say that they're just put out with God, is primarily because they've begun to view God as a tester, a legalist. But do you see how Jesus has drawn near? And there is a meaning to marriage, and the ultimate meaning of marriage, as we'll see, is about Jesus and his heart for his people, his bride. This is the most recent attempt by the Pharisees to entrap Jesus. You know, they've tried several other things. And so they see the crowds and they've determined we know how to get them this time. I also think they've got in mind back in Mark 6 when John the Baptist on this very same subject made a stand. They cut his head off. And so I think they also say if we can get Jesus on the record about this, maybe old King Herod will come along and he'll do to Jesus what he did to John the Baptist. So think with me as we start about who designed marriage and why he did so. And what I want you to see this morning is that he's got a whole lot more behind the creation and design of marriage than just my life, your life, my marriage as precious as it is to my wife. When I asked Julie in November 2000 to be my wife, and when God sent forth his son Jesus to be crucified on the cross... Our aim this morning is for you to walk out understanding what those two things have to do with each other because the answer is they have everything to do with one another. So I guess my heart here is that I don't want you to just know the Word of God. I want you to know the God of the Word, what His heart is behind this teaching. So the origin of marriage is in the heart of God. So please hear me on this because we are bound and determined in our generation to improve upon what God has designed. We think we know better. So let's second see that God created marriage with a particular design. You know, they've brought up Moses, and Jesus goes back. He says, well, let's go back to the beginning. Now, it is because of the hardness of your heart he wrote you this commandment. And he'll talk about sexual immorality. In fact, if you want to go to the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew from this passage, we'll see that sexual immorality and adultery is a divine, or, or, or divorce on those terms, a divine concession to our human weakness. As Jesus goes back to the beginning, he says, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's the design of marriage. I love the privilege that I get sometimes to sit with a man and a woman as they're planning to be married. And we have premarital counseling, and we always go to this passage from Genesis 2. And I, and I always explain this is like a four sides of a foundation. You've got to have all four if you're going to build up a healthy marriage unto the Lord. So here's the first part of God's design is what we'll call severance. 
Therefore, a man shall, what's the verb here? Leave his mother and father. Now, this refers back to Adam, of course, in Genesis 2. And two things are true of Adam before God brings Eve into his life. Have you noticed this? What are the two things that are true of Adam before God brings Eve? First, Adam has a relationship with God. He knows God. At this time in his life, he listens to God. He walks with God. And second, Adam has a responsibility. God, before he brings Eve into his life, gives him the responsibility to protect, guard, defend the garden. So a simple application is this. Until a man has an abiding relationship with God and demonstrates that he can fulfill his responsibilities, he is not a good candidate for marriage. He won't do in this marriage what God has designed the marriage to do. It's really important. (laughs) So in order to enter marriage, there are some things that you have to leave behind. It's a principle of severance. Specifically, the scripture says that that man is to leave behind who? His parents. Something's changing when the covenant is made of marriage. That's why so often I've seen and I know I'll be just like this when a dad is walking his girl down the aisle. Most dads can barely keep it together. Most dads I see are actually kind of propped up by their daughter. They're just like, we got to keep going. And he's going to stop. No, we got, no, let's keep going. He's about to turn around and walk out sometimes. Why? Because we know what's happening here. What are you leaving? Well, specifically, leaving parents as the primary authority and accountability in your life. Parents, if they've done their job under God's authority, have raised up children to know God, worship God, value God. And now they know that this is changing, the dynamics changing, the priority is changing. My children, I'll no longer be their primary means of accountability. That's changing in the new covenant to their spouse. And that can be hard. Now, when my children get married, I'll always be dad. But I will move more to a role of counselor and helper than primary provider and authority. And I know I'm going to need help with this because I already don't like these people, right, that are going to come. I'm just teasing. Actually, I'm not. No, I am teasing. So in in order to enter marriage, what's the implication? This is important. In order to enter marriage, you have to leave behind childish things. Marriage isn't for children. Marriage is for men and women. Childish things have to be led behind. And the distinction is not just about age. The distinction is about spiritual maturity. Remember, Mark 9, Jesus has essentially told the disciples, you're a bunch of boys still arguing about which of you is the greatest. So you're, telling, you're acting like boys telling children about the kingdom in an incorrect way. So childish things are left behind. For you, that might mean, as you enter marriage, not saving up any money but spending everything you've got is left behind. For you, that might mean hours of video games are left behind. Relying on your parents to buy you things is left behind. Maybe a less than consistent work ethic is left behind. 
Doing what you want to do before doing what you have to do is left behind. Childish things have to be left behind. So anyone, anyone thinking about entering this God-designed gift and blessing called marriage needs to think carefully about these things before getting married. Because marriage is, is a very emotional decision driven by all sorts of factors. Can we get the fighter verse again? But as you think about marriage, it's really wise to wait for the Lord so that it's a prayerful, thoughtful, godly decision. You know what else is left behind? Every other person's left behind. When I said yes to Julie, I said no to every other woman on planet Earth. When I said yes to my wife, I said no to everybody else. And the only reason The only reason you'd ever leave everything else behind is because you believe there's something greater to be found in marriage than what you're leaving behind in order to be married. And on that, I would say amen. I have found that to be so. And can we think for a moment... The pain that's implicit behind these words, the contrast of these phrases, leave everything behind, it's marriage, send her away. It's devastating. It's devastating. Because the next characteristic of marriage is permanence. Leave your mother and father And hold fast to his wife. Hold fast. That verb in Hebrew is, um, Hebrew is always such a, uh, it's a language of pictures and it just calls to mind. And the picture is you're holding fast, right? So so it's like Adam has taken his arms and put around Eve and drawn her close. It's, it's, they, they love each other. There's protection, there's provision, and there's permanence. In his book, the meaning of marriage, Tim Keller says this. He says, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Did you hear that? We've moved away from covenants to consumer, like what you want, how you want, So he goes on to say, today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. This has also been called co-modification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships, so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept increasingly foreign to us, and yet the Bible says it's the essence of marriage. Let's contrast what Tim Keller says with a book by authors John Adam and Nancy Williamson entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. Here's what they write. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. 
Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it's especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. It can be a personal triumph. And I know the author of that book was John Adam, but it sounds like Adam in Genesis 3 after the fall. It's her fault. Basically what he's saying is, send her away. Now look at the verb, leave, leave, hold fast. Can you hear the difference in the verb tense? Hold fast is present tense. So don't be someone who held fast. Be someone right now who's holding fast. Because marriage is so hard. You're married to a sinner. And what Adam began to believe, listen to me, what Adam began to believe is everything in my life that's wrong is my wife's fault. What happened between bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and it's all her fault? What happened? The fall happened. Sin happened. So I always tell Julie the same thing Adrian Rogers said to his wife. If you leave me, I'm going with you, right? permanence then there's unity the two shall become one flesh you know what's true is julie knows the real me she knows the real me i know i've said in before you know in our culture we uh kind of go out and date the ideal and then you then you actually marry the real that's who the real person is she's seen me she could stand here this morning and tell you all sorts of things about me And that's actually really helpful for my life. Because spiritually speaking, I could deceive myself standing up here week after week, opening this book, telling you what it says, teaching you its principles. Yet if I left from here and went to my home behind closed doors and was someone who wasn't patient and kind, wasn't prayerful, didn't listen to her, didn't serve our family, I would be self-deceived because, to quote Tim Keller again, what the great desire of our souls is, is to be really known or truly known and truly loved at the same time. Because we deceive ourselves and think if anybody's really going to love me, they can't know the real me. The two shall become one. That's the covenant of marriage, is that in a marriage, you don't have to pretend. You shouldn't have to hide. You shouldn't have to have things that they don't know about. You you shouldn't have a a different life here than there. In marriage, you're you're really known. But then sin came, and what do they want to do? Cover up. Hide. Nobody can know the real me. And if we do that, we forfeit the fourth principle of marriage, And that's intimacy. What intimacy is, is what we refer to already, to be truly known and truly loved. That's intimacy. That's how God designed you, and then that's how God has therefore designed marriage. You remember the Genesis passage culminates in, they were both naked and unashamed. And intimacy, to be really known and truly loved, is so very, very rare, isn't it? 
I mean, how many people do you have in your life that know the real you? So in designing marriage as God did, he's doing more than we think at first glance. So let's keep these up here. Severance, permanence, unity, and intimacy. These are the four essentials of marriage. This is what marriage is. But I want you to know you can't have permanence without severance, right? You can't enter a permanent relationship if certain things haven't been left behind. Right? As Adam's holding fast to his wife, there's not room for two people there, right? As soon as two people come, you can't hold fast. And you also can't bring some childish things in. Just think of Adam, he's got all sorts of toys and he wants to hold fast. No, you have to lay everything down if you're going to hold fast. And then you can't have unity if you don't have permanence. If I'm constantly thinking, oh, she might leave. You can't have unity. Because either you have to do things you don't really want to do to keep unity... Because marriage isn't about the wife becoming more like the husband or the husband becoming more like the wife. The only way it's going to work is if both of them are submitted to the lordship of Christ and are being sanctified unto his likeness. And then you can't have intimacy if you don't have the others. Does that make sense? How each is dependent on the one that comes before, but then also the following flows out of what has come before. That's marriage. But it's more than marriage. It's also the gospel. Same four things. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to go after him, it's the first thing you'd have to do. Well, he's just said it in Mark. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross to follow me. What is that? That's severance. You think you're going to come after me and love the world? You think you're going to take up the cross and and take up all these other things? No, you're going, have, you're going to have to. He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And when you come after him, and when you deny yourself, and when, up, when you take up the cross, and when you follow him, and you've really severed yourself from the world, Jesus' promise to you is, I will never leave you. Or forsake you. What is that? Well, that's the permanence of all permanence. Amen. And then there becomes a unity. Jesus says, if you follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. In other words, you can't be unified to Jesus and not have his purpose. You begin to be more and more like him. And what he desires, you desire. And his mission is your mission. And then the culmination. The culmination is a restoration to what you were actually created for, and that is intimacy with God himself. Paul says it this thing, this way, rather, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, indeed, I count all things loss. What is that? Isn't that severance? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What did he just say? What I'm leaving behind pales in comparison to what I'm gaining in Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What is that? It's intimacy. 
God truly knows me. God truly loves me. I'm leaving all things behind to grab a hold of him. And much more important, he's grabbed a hold of me and he won't leave me. He won't forsake me. The third point briefly is that marriage, like all God created, is deeply affected by the fall and by sin. Here in Mark chapter 10, when the Pharisees come up to him in that time and place in that culture, uh, a man could write a certificate of divorce for pretty much any reason he wanted. Found somebody he liked better, just write a certificate of divorce. She doesn't meet your standards, just write a certificate of divorce. And, and the value of marriage had been so demeaned as Jesus emphasizes the beginning of creation for his teaching on marriage, we should know that marriage can never work without the direct involvement and care of the creator of marriage. So again, remember from last week, once the fall happened, men and women began to seek dominion over one another. And that can show up powerfully in marriage. Hey, I expect you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I mean, I don't want you to look at somebody else, but I might look at somebody else. And, and then as if marriage becomes a fight for dominion between the two parties where intimacy is designed, do you see how it blows up and it goes the other way? Once the intimacy is gone, the unity is gone. Once the unity is gone, you say, well, this might not be permanent. And then there's a severance of another kind. And Jesus says the reason for this is the hardness of heart. That's where sexual immorality comes from. Marriage is a covenant of promise that sexual immorality violates at the deepest level. The two shall become one is a statement of sexual intimacy, but it's more than that. And then once you forfeit that, it has the implications on all the other levels that you would have intimacy. But what I want you to see is that God does not cast off or divorce the divorced. God does not send you away. Do you remember Mark 11? That's why I said, let's remember what's going on. This teacher is more than a teacher. He's a restorer. He's a redeemer. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. He is. He's not going to send you away. In fact, he's going to sacrificially give himself. He's, He's the faithful bridegroom who has never, has never violated the covenant. And Jesus is the faithful bridegroom that if you're married, your marriage is intended to point to. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. In your marriage, husbands, you're to be a giver, not a taker. And in conclusion, well, uh, when I say that word, I've still got a little bit of time to go. Just hold with me. Number four is the creator of marriage died on the cross and he is risen. The creator of marriage died on the cross and he is risen. I want you to think with me and maybe just use this as a point of illustration. The way we often do weddings is sort of the pattern that has developed over time is that the, often the day before a wedding there's a rehearsal dinner. And it's where people are told, here's where you're going to stand, and here's what we're going to do. And, and, uh, and, and then it's often followed up by a rehearsal dinner, right? So you have a rehearsal, everybody gathers, all the important people are there. And that's what the Old Testament is, friends. The Old Testament is a rehearsal. 
Adam and Eve, when they fell, the first rehearsal was God showed up and covered them. He's showing, this is what I'm going to do. So you stand here, Adam. You stand here, Eve. You're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. You're going to be the recipients of grace, not the actors who restore yourself. And all through the Old Testament, that's how you can read the Old Testament. It's rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal. Abraham and Isaac is a rehearsal. It's a substitute. One of my favorite rehearsals is Ruth and Boaz. You thought you were done. You're not done. I've got bread in Bethlehem. You're not going to starve. And your line's not going to be cut. I'm going to send forth a redeemer. The exodus itself is a rehearsal. That's a big rehearsal. We're marching out, right? We studied this earlier in the summer. Salvation is by grace through a mediator in order to be made holy. They couldn't have pulled it off for themselves. The rehearsal is all all through the Old Testament. The rehearsal, the emphasis is God is going to intervene and he's going to do something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And he's going to bring you back to himself. Big picture of the Bible, Genesis 3, they're sent out of the garden. Revelation, we're welcomed back into the presence of God. How does that happen? Jesus makes it happen. Jesus opens the door. You can think of the Last Supper as the last rehearsal. That's a rehearsal dinner. Sitting with his best men, right? And, and yet it's him who gets up. Jesus and, and serves. The night before a wedding, you're often, I know this was the case with me, surrounded by your very best friends. Jesus, the night before he goes to the altar, is abandoned. His best men, nowhere to be found. And when the wedding day comes, you always put on your finest, right? You dress up. Jesus was stripped bare. Because, friends, the cross is not a rehearsal. Here is the true bridegroom who has left the Father to come and be crucified. And I know his arms are nailed to the cross, but I want you to see this. He is holding you fast. Provision, protection, and the two, what's marriage say? What's the gospel say? The two shall become one. So now, because of Jesus, you can stand before your creator again without shame. And Jesus, when the question is asked, who bears the sin of the world? He answers with those familiar wedding vows. I do. And he does not wear a a ring on his finger to signify the covenant. His hands bear the nails. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised again. All the way back in Genesis 2, God has a design for marriage to have a particular message. Your marriage, by God's design, is to be a living, breathing, in the world functioning parable, if that's the right way of saying it, illustration, a megaphone of the gospel. 
This is what covenant love means. And so it's important, whether you're married or not, or whatever your uh, life experience is, we all want to uphold marriage as God designed it because you can't live in a culture that doesn't understand marriage and live in a culture that does understand the gospel. They are, well, pun intended, married together, our understanding of these things. And then all the way back in Genesis 2, I believe God had in mind Revelation 19. So let's look at this scripture together. Christ crucified, buried, raised again, soon to reign. Revelation 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 6. Be better. (laughs) Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Now, I've been to some weddings with some great music, but nothing ever like this. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. So in marriage, you are called to love sacrificially. Because getting marriage and the gospel right go together. So everybody in the room, everybody streaming, you are dearly, sacrificially, faithfully, and eternally loved by God. Do you love him? Have you forsaken the world? Have you severed your ties in order to follow him? Are you trusting that he, he will never leave you? He will never forsake you. He's been forsaken for you, but he will never forsake you. And are you now becoming more and more like him? Is the great joy of your life to know and love him? Severance, permanence, unity, intimacy. That's the meaning of marriage. And that's the meaning of the gospel. And the Bible says, these are true words. Blessed are those who are invited. You going to be there? You going to be at the wedding supper? You going to be there with him? Stand together. We want to pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, the faithful the faithful bridegroom. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you have not sent us away. 
but instead you have sent your son to put away all our sin. I thank you that in Christ you found a way to send our sins away without sending us away. Amazing grace. We praise your name. And God, may it be the joy of our lives to abide in an intimate relationship with you through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.